Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life podcast. This is your host, Krista Bigler, private practice integrative nutritionist, helping people across the U.S. reverse digestive issues, eczema, and autoimmunity via phone and video consult. To learn more, visit lessstressednutrition.com. Now, on to the show. Hey there, it's Krista Bigler, and October is Liver and Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We're going to pay homage to that with three episodes over the month of October. We're going to kick off with a part one and two from Dr. Arthur Frankel, who is a renowned oncologist with over 200 peer-reviewed published papers in oncology research, and who also has a big five-year grant coming up with the role of gut microbiota in um certain types of cancer therapy. So what I really need you to know is the first part of this, he's going to go deep dive into cancer and you're going to learn things about cancer that you may not know. I I learned a lot about things I did not know about what happens when you're removing a tumor, etc. And then in the second part, he goes over some stats that are really big news, some that are not even really published yet. They've been published at big oncology conferences. And some of the other um, research was published in 2018 really not stuff that's hit the kind of mainstream at all related to cancer, like the success of the type of cancer therapy he is going to talk about related to the microbiome. So that is going to be really exciting, but you've got to stick around till next week to part two to hear some of that. So this week's a deep dive. Next week, he's going to go over some kind of jaw-dropping stats. And then on the third week, we're going to have breast cancer survivor and cancer coach Kathy Bias come in and talk to us about just lifestyle things that help augment and possibly make cancer therapy and treatment more successful. I just wanted to give you that little primer. And remember, we always love hearing your feedback over on the website, lessstressedlife.com and lessstressednutrition.com. There's a little widget on the side where you can click on and it's a, it's a speak pipe app and you can record a little question or something. And we'd love to answer your questions throughout the podcast. So if you want to drop a question or a comment or a review or something verbally, we'd love to feature you. Off to the show. Okay, so today on The Less Stressed Life, we have Dr. Arthur Frankel, who is a cancer researcher and physician. He specializes in hematology and medical oncology. He received his medical degree from Harvard Medical School with his residency and medical oncology fellowship at Stanford University. He is a big researcher, so he is currently relocating institutions, but... um, 
also has a pending grant for a five-year study on the role of gut microbiota in modulating immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy for cancer. So we'll try to decode that here in a second. He states that immunotherapy is the most important advance in the past decade against cancer, and he's very passionate about the connection between the immune system and the constantly evolving nature of cancer and tumors. His special interest is in melanoma, and he's been a co-inventor in 12 issued patents, as well as the author or co-author on more than 200 publications in peer-reviewed journals. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Frankel, and welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's first, um, the audience for this podcast is really a lot of smart people. There's a lot of health practitioners that listen to it, but I mean, we might just be in our place working in our practices or very smart moms or whatnot. So give us the definitions, the layman's version of, tell us what immunotherapy is in cancer treatment. What does that mean? Okay, so cancer arises from our normal cells. And it arises because of mutations or genetic changes in the DNA of some of our normal cells that leave them to grow out of control and to spread. Mm -hmm. And that produces a challenge because you may have a limited number of differences between the cancer part of your body and the rest of your body. And somehow you are asking your immune system, your your ability to fight against foreign material to recognize that very slight difference and remove the cancer from your body. So that one of the challenges has been from from the beginning of understanding cancer, that cancer itself is part of our genetic makeup, part of our existence, and does not necessarily have a lot of difference from the rest of our body. So it's a challenge. Mm -hmm. The other problem with cancer is that these cells are almost like uh, living organisms in a forest or in a a jungle in that as they multiply, they can continue to mutate and evolve or figure out ways of surviving in different environments within your body and, and even against the immune system. They're almost like this super is, bugs. Has been correct. They are. They're just bigger than bacteria, uh, and they're actually m- much more adapted to surviving and proliferating in the human body because they are part of us. They are our cells. They have all of our genetic makeup, but with some changes. And this is a major problem in treating cancer. Uh, for many decades. Uh, From the turn of the century, uh, around 1900 until 2000, the major way we had to approach cancer was to surgically remove it and hope that there were not enough remaining tumor cells in the body. This has always been a challenge because if I demonstrate to you uh, with this pen that I've got in front of me. If we look under a microscope, cancer cells look like Christmas balls. But if you spin them down in a test tube, you can put one million tumor cells in the head of a pen. Mm. Therefore, if you operate on someone with cancer and you remove all the visible tumor, 
then there still could be tumor left elsewhere in the body. So when you operate on a tumor mass in a human body, the smallest size of that mass is about a half an inch. You know, below that, you wouldn't know the person had cancer. That tumor mass has about a billion tumor cells. So if you use surgery to treat cancer, you may be removing large masses, but as I explained earlier, there could still be millions of tumor cells that have escaped from the original mass. Mm. Is, that, is that coming across okay? Yeah, it's coming across beautifully. So there's still a millions of tumor cells. So what I'm understanding here is if you don't have a healthy immune system, you're not going to be able to address this because you have these super adaptable cancer cells uh, that want to grow, adapt and grow. You know, you still have a million left at least, right? So they want to grow. Uh, so they're taking, they can take advantage of a, a poor immune system, right? Right. Now, I want to explain that a little bit. Not everyone that has surgery for cancer has persistent tumor cells. You know, it's, it's a uh, statistical chance. So, for example, women with breast cancer, even though you remove the mass in the breast, about half of those women may still have tiny tumor cells that have escaped. The way I explain this to people or, or patients is that it, you, can, you could consider this like an ant bed that you could remove the ant bed, but because the individual ants are so small, some of them can escape. I know the analogy is not perfect because really ants colonized by queen ants, but I'm trying to use this to give you an analogy. I like the analogy. Okay. So you called it resembling superbugs, and I said it's even worse because it's genetically more advanced. It has many billions more genetic pieces, and it knows you. It's like the uh, spy uh, working for the other side that knows a heck of a lot about. So these tumor cells then have some differences, but as I also explained, they have a chameleon-like nature in that they can get additional mutations to avoid your immune system or to avoid other checks and balances that your body may be trying to do. Mm -hmm. So it's fairly remarkable that anyone gets cured of cancer. That's However, as I, as I explained around 1900 and even a little earlier, with the advent of anesthesia, people with tumors underwent surgery. And surgery as I explained, is sort of a gross tool because any visible tumor has at least a billion tumor cells. And you can put as many as a million tumor cells in the head of a pin. Therefore, when you remove a primary tumor, there still can be millions of little tumor cells that are each evolving and growing and spreading in your body. So surgery in general, cures about 50% of cancers. Yes. Even with the advent of radiation therapy, which is like a mop that will help eliminate dividing cells in the area, 
you still rarely see a cure rate above 60-65%. So that means because there's over a million cancers a year in the United States, there's over 300,000 to 500,000 deaths a year from cancer. And it's particularly frightening to people because unlike heart disease or kidney disease, it's harder to, to you know, identify the enemy and to have control over the symptoms or side effects. Cancer often causes pain or alterations in other organ function. So with that, the first thing that occurred in the around 1970s or so became more common uh, was the use of chemotherapy. They discovered it really in World War One, became more sophisticated in World War Two. They learned how to use chemicals that are really poisons to give it to patients, and the chemicals would kill dividing cells. And you say, Dr. Frankel, that's perfect. Since cancer cells divide, and that's what you're worried about, we'll get rid of cancer. The problem is a lot of normal tissue in your body divides as well. Mm-hmm. And so that when you give chemotherapy, you also lose hair, you lose your GI tract, so you can have diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, you lose a lot of your blood cells, so you can become anemic or get infections, you can bleed, uh, you lose your germ cells. Uh, your skin can become damaged. So chemotherapy is not benign. And unfortunately, many tumors learn how to divide slower than the normal tissues in your body. Hmm. So, and how to sneak around. So that chemotherapy helped but didn't solve everything. One of the things we discovered, though, was about 10 to 15% of people given chemotherapy for cancer did get very nice responses that would last a good period of time. Why was that? Well, people at first in the 1960s and 70s and 80s said, oh, it's good chemotherapy. That tumor just happened to be sensitive, and that's why they did so well. Mm -hmm. We now know that that's not the case. What we know now is that the chemotherapy disrupted the tumor cells and released antigens and woke up the immune system to fight against the cancer better. And it's only those patients where their immune system was turned on that seemed to get the durable remissions from chemotherapy. Around 1990, uh, uh, work had progressed with using interleukin-2 and some other cytokines and interferon that occasionally you could boost the immune system. And when you did that, then miraculously, some people with tumors, their tumors would shrink. And some of them would remain in remission or come under control for years. Then in the late 1990s, uh, several groups, uh, one group in California, another group in Japan, and a group in New York, discovered antibodies. These are small proteins that would turn the T cells in your body on get them so that they would suddenly wake up. And you say, Dr. Frankel, why were they quiet? Because if you always turned on your immune system, then you would have something called autoimmune disease all the time. Mm -hmm. You would have rheumatoid arthritis, 
you would have lupus, you would have multiple sclerosis. They're horrible diseases when your own immune system is out of control. Mm-hmm. So normally your immune system is under some limited activity. And sadly, among the skills that cancer cells have is the ability to send those proteins to block the T cells. That was discovered in the late 1990s and ways of releasing that blockade or or releasing the T cells was discovered. And that led to the modern era of what we call immune checkpoint blockade. Immune checkpoint means something that prevents the immune system from being turned on. Tumor cells are good at that, but so is your skin. You don't want to have psoriasis all the time. Mm -hmm. But once you unblock the T-cells, one of three things can happen. Well, four. One, you know, you don't do a good enough job of unblocking it, so you treat someone, you spend the money, and nothing happens. Mm -hmm. Another thing that can happen is you unblock the T-cells, and they say, ha, I'm going to attack this person's pancreas. I'm going to give them diabetes. Mm. That's not good. And that does happen. And, by the way, I still don't recognize the tumor in my person, so they can go ahead and die from their cancer, but I'm still giving the person diabetes. Mm -hmm. That's not good. Ouch. The third thing that can happen is that, ah, I'm now turned on. I recognize the cancer cells because there's enough mutations there that I can see that it's foreign, and I'm going to attack the tumor, and, oh, by the way, I'm not going to bother the normal tissue. That's ideal. That happens about 15 to 20% of the time. Finally, you could say, okay, I'm turning on the T cells, and they're going to both cause diarrhea and attack the tumor. So my T cells are going to do both. (laughs) That happens about 10 to 15% of the time. So when you watch on TV the advertisement about these new, you know, immune checkpoint blockers that can fight cancer, this immunotherapy. You will listen, and they usually show a couple that are in their 50s or 60s holding hands and walking through a park or in a town. And, you know, on the skyscraper or something will be the name of the immunotherapy because, you know, they're proud of it. But then as you keep watching, that couple keeps walking, and they tell you every side effect that can occur, all those autoimmune side effects. So they're honest, but it's very important that the doctor let the patient know as well. These are magical, very good new treatments, but they can come with a cost. Mm -hmm. And they don't help everyone. In around 2010, as I was working in this area, I loved my patients, and it was a heartbreaker. You tell a young person in their 30s, I'm going to give you this new treatment. You know, 10 years ago, we didn't have it. You would have died. But now we have a one in three chance that you can have a normal life. And this young person looks at you and says, well, wait a second. If they're like me, I'm a little bit of a pessimist. That means two out of three times, I'm still dead. And it's a heartbreak. You say, you know, it's better than it was. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
And then you have to tell them, oh, by the way, even if you do get a response, you might get diabetes for the rest of your life, or you might have you know, damage to your heart or your lungs or your brain mm-hmm. or your colon. So my, I became passionate, because you mentioned that, about what could we do to improve it? Because I'm not young. I have a limited number of years of research left in me. But could I make it a little bit better that maybe the cure rate, if it went from 25-30% to 35-40% in my lifetime or with anything I helped on, I could feel very proud of that because you're talking hundreds of thousands of lives. It's not curing everyone, but how could we make the medicine better? And so then I started studying what is it that, that helps these immune checkpoint blockers to work, and when do they not work? And the first thing that I found in the literature from other investigators is if you look at the tumors, and I did some work in this as well, the, the patients that had cancers that responded to unleashing the T-cells already had T-cells in their tumor. They were there, but they were dumb. They were sort of like, yeah, I'm here, but I'm not going to do anything. <laughs> Those that got the treatment but didn't respond, if you looked in their tumor, in many cases there were no T-cells there. So even if you turned on the T-cells, there weren't any in the tumor to attack it. So that then made me ask, what tells T-cells to get interested even before this immunotherapy or immune checkpoint blockade? Mm -hmm. And it turns out that our immune system has two parts. It has something called the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. The innate immune system is the dendritic cells and macrophages that are in all organisms from the smallest little sponge in the ocean to us. And these cells recognize bacteria or viruses or even cancer cells that shouldn't be there, and they send out an alarm. They do not have the ability to fight an evolving cancer, but they can at least send an alarm like a fire bell or something or or a fire alarm Mm -hmm. saying, "Uh uh-oh, You know, there's something going on. You know, T-cells, where are you? Come. Uh, And that innate immune system has to be turned on in order for this immune checkpoint therapy to work. Well, tell me, can you you tell us what some of those alarm signals from the innate immune system, which is supposed to recognize the bad things and just send the alarm but can't fight the cancer, what do some of those alarms look like typically? Very good. So that was actually my area of research before I moved uh, from Dallas, part of my research, before I got into this area. And that is, there are a variety of molecules. They're called danger-associated molecular patterns. They're little molecules, just like sugar tastes sweet to your tongue. They're small molecules that can bind to the surface of macrophages and dendritic cells and tell that cell that something bad is going on. And it can be free DNA that's released by tumor cells. It could be virus antigens that are released. It can be uh, certain proteins that bacteria release. It can be lipids that are produced by certain bacteria. Uh, These are called danger-associated molecular patterns. 
they bind to something called pathogen-related receptors on dendritic cells and macrophages, and you know it because when you were little and you went to the doctor, what did you not like? I have no idea. What did you hate? What did I not like what at the doctor? Hate? What do we hate? Getting shots? Yep. <laughs> yes. Now, why did shots hurt? Because they, they hurt? hurt. No. Shots themselves, you feel a tiny prick, but, you know, mosquitoes, sometimes you don't even notice it at first. They hurt because they have to add some of those molecular patterns to whatever they're injecting into you. So your dendritic cells in your immune system, your innate immune system will get turned on and bring the T cells so that the antigen will then lead to resistance against measles, mumps, diphtheria, pertussis. Mm -hmm. So the reason the shot hurt when you were little was they added something called an adjuvant Mm. to the vaccine. Mm. That adjuvant is just another word for what you ask about what turns on the innate immune system. Mm-hmm. So you feel it, but not really, right? Like there's not typical feelings. We can't put our finger on what this feels like. Oh, no, you can't. <laughs> okay. So your, your nervous system, oddly enough, is set up a little bit like your immune system. It also has receptors for these same danger associated molecular patterns. And you'd say, Art, why is this? Because if something's damaging you, not only do you want your immune system to get turned on and fight it if it's foreign, but you also want your brain to know, hey, you know, I've got this wound on my arm that's got an infection in it. You know, I need to either, you know, clean it or see a doctor or do something. So your, your brain... And your, your nervous system and your immune system respond to some of the same signals. Mm-hmm. And that's why when you go to meetings, we'll talk about later about your diet and the microbiome, it affects both your immune system and your nervous system. Okay. So to recap... Uh, What I think I'm hearing you say, I'm going to recap a few key points here um, that maybe people wouldn't have pulled out because I'm thinking we could kind of call cancer as everyone has cancer uh, to some extent. It just matters if it's overgrown. It, It divides and multiplies. Some other tissue divides and multiplies. Cancer is very consistent with a weakened immune system. Is that a correct statement? Can we say that? Can we presume that? Not always. Okay. So I told you that that most of the time, but these cancers are smart. And there are cancers, for example, people that get uh, pancreas cancer, in some cases, or brain cancer, glioblastoma, or some leukemias only have a few mutations. And they have learned how to avoid the immune system. That has a troubling aspect to it. It means not only are the cancers very smart, but it means that if you use immunotherapy, it may not produce remissions in those cancers. And we certainly have such cancers. Sarcoma, brain tumors, some pancreas cancers, some colon cancers have figured out a way of preventing the innate immune system 
and the adaptive or T-cell immune system from recognizing them. However, the majority of cancers, and there are now 13 that we know of for which we have immunotherapies approved, you can help the patient in many cases with immunotherapy. So I want to ask you, I want to mention for the listeners that T-cells are essentially immune cells um, when he's talking about T-cells, specific ones. Can you tell us which of the 13 cancers have immunotherapy as an approved treatment option? Yes. So if you remember when I gave that talk in in California, uh, you know, and it changes almost every month. Uh, but I will pull up the list since you asked. Uh, and uh, let me just go. I've got the list. That's okay. So well, I, I'll, give you, I'll give you the list by the most responsive to the least responsive. Nice. Hodgkin's okay. lymphoma, Merkel cell cancer, melanoma, triple negative breast cancer, uh, a special type of colorectal cancer, uh, squamous skin cancer, uh, a special type of GI cancer, uh, lung cancer, kidney cancer, liver cancer, bladder cancer, head and neck cancer, gastric cancer. All right? So that's not every cancer in the body, but when you consider that 10 years ago, there were zero approved drugs, immunotherapy drugs for cancer... This is a dramatic advance. It is a dramatic advance. So my question is, with immune checkpoint therapy, what is, what's the mechanism of delivery? Is this a pill? Is this an injection? What does this look like for the patient? So, so what was discovered is that the tumor cells put out proteins that block your T cells. And the way to counteract that is with something called monoclonal antibodies. And I spent a good part of my life making those. That's where you make another protein. It's actually similar to your own immune proteins from your B lymphocytes, but that's a different day and a different talk. (laughs) It's, It's a protein that we make in the laboratory that will bind to the bad stuff put out by the cancer cell and neutralize it so the T cells can suddenly wake up. And so it has to be injected intravenously. Uh, and it's, it's put in an IV in the arm. It's usually infused in patients in the office over about anywhere between a half an hour to an hour and a half. It's usually well-tolerated. Rarely one in a hundred can be allergic to that protein because this protein is made, oddly enough, in something called Chinese hamster ovary cells. Uh, not the way I like to make those proteins, but the, the big pharmaceutical companies have found that's the least expensive way to make it. How are they made? So there are, there are in, the, the proteins are made in a fermenter using Chinese hamsters. These are those little rodents. Oh. Ovary, ovary cells. Oh. So, so we're so resourceful. It's very resourceful. Chinese hamster right. ovary cells. Okay, got it. I just want to make sure I heard that right. Right. So it turns out about one in a hundred people are allergic to mice and hamsters and rats and things like that. Not everybody, but a rare person is. 
and they then could have a reaction to this immunotherapy. Those people can have a reaction as you're infusing the medicine. But as I say, they're relatively rare, and oftentimes you can slow the infusion so that they can tolerate it. Mm-hmm. But most patients tolerate it, and it works to turn on T-cells. So it's an IV injection. It happens over 30 minutes. It's well tolerated. How often do people get that? Well, average, we'll say, is an hour. So they'll get it anywhere between every two weeks to once a month, depending on the particular medicine. Okay. And that's a wrap for today, but make sure you have that subscribe button clicked so that way you get next week's episode auto-delivered to you, where Dr. Frankel goes over some interesting stats. You're going to learn which diet that mice had that increased the efficacy of this cancer therapy five times. And my favorite part is when Dr. Frankel says, I replicated this in 250 mice, but I'm not even going to try to publish it because they're not going to believe me because it's so profound. So come back next week and we'll go over those stats. I'll see you then. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stress Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stress Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 